The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So we are in the book of Acts, for those of you who haven't been with us. We're going to just continue this wonderful book that God has preserved for us for 2,000 years to let us know what our beginnings were in the book of Acts, starting with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension, and then how he poured out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to start the church, and how the church exploded in Jerusalem, continued to grow, and for almost the first 10 years, the Christian church was a Jewish church. We need to keep that in mind. Five to seven to eight years, it was nothing but Jewish people coming to know Christ. So it was a Jewish Christian church. It's very important in the stories that develops throughout the book of Acts. So Gentiles were not joining the church from the very beginning. But they do later. And God chooses the Apostle Paul specifically to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. Today's sermon is called Paul Testifies to the Jewish Mob. There were a lot of mobs in the Bible. There's mobs in the book of Acts. This mob in particular, I'm not being prejudicial or anti-Semitic. Some might falsely accuse me. That's, I'm just, the title reflects what's going on in the chapter. Paul testifies to the Jewish mob. That's where we left Paul last week. He had just, he's, it's a Pentecost, it's a feast day, he's in Jerusalem. There's some unbelieving Jews there who know who Paul is. They don't like him, they hate him, they think he's a traitor, they hate Jesus, they hate the church, they hate Christians. Therefore, they will attack one of its leaders, that's Paul. And they resort to lies in order to turn the crowd against Paul by saying they're in Jerusalem. They're in the temple where predominantly Jews are who are there from all over the world for a very important feast day, Pentecost. These unbelievers who hate Paul stir up the crowd simply by perpetuating, propagating very loudly a lie. Hey, help us, this man in the temple. Teaches against the law, teaches against the temple, teaches against Moses, and teaches Gentiles not to follow the law. And he also teaches Jews to abandon the law. That was the lie. And then the Jewish mob instantly turned on Paul to the point where they began pummeling. First they dragged him out of the inner part of the court, and they dragged him into the court of the Gentiles and began to just beat him and pummel him to death, probably even kicking him to the point where he did almost die. And then the Romans intervened, and they rescued him. And then they actually had to carry him up here, a bunch of soldiers like this, out of the mosh pit because the crowd was so violent and they got him up on the stairs just before the Roman barracks. And then Paul is there on the stairs and has some relief and some safety. And there's the mob out in front as they're seething and foaming at the mouth, uh, crying for his blood. And he's all battered and beat up. And he shakes his hand like this because he wants to silence the crowd because he wants to speak to them. And the, the commander there, the Roman commander, allows him to speak. Go ahead. And so Paul, that's where we left Paul. He's about to speak to this this hateful, riled up, bloodthirsty Jewish mob. And I'm not exaggerating when I say bloodthirsty. They just tried to kill him. They came close. If the Romans didn't intervene, they would have killed him there on the spot. They have done this once before in that very same place. Years before, we saw Stephen a Jewish Christian where the same many probably many of the same Jews 
turned on Stephen just because of what he taught and believed in full fury. And they grabbed him and dragged him out. And they stoned him to death right there on the spot. No trial. So they murdered him, a Jewish Christian. Jewish influence was responsible for John the Baptist getting his head cut off there in Jerusalem. That's just gruesome and grotesque. Unbelievable. John the Baptist, a Jew who believed in Jesus. And in the same place, in the same temple, years before this incident with Paul, Jews are seeking the death penalty for Jesus himself, the Savior, the Jewish Messiah. And they were successful because they were successful in bringing him before Herod, successful in bringing him before trial in front of Pontius Pilate, and they were successful in getting the Jewish crowd, the Jewish mob, all riled up to cry out in unison, crucify him. Actually, they said in the gospel, away with this man. Those are the exact same words we're going to see in Acts chapter 22 of the same Jews at least living in that same area, cry out about Paul. Away with this man. And Jesus said in the Gospels that the the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, the hard-necked, hardened Jews had a reputation throughout all history of killing God's prophets. That's what Jesus said. Well, Jesus, he's anti-Semitic. No, Jesus was a Jew. He's the ultimate Jew. That's not anti-Semitic. It's not really about their ethnicity. It's about their heart, whether they believe or not. There's two categories of people, believers, unbelievers. That's it. It doesn't matter what your skin color is or your ethnicity. That has nothing to do with it in terms of a biblical context. So really, uh, you got the Jewish mob. You, You have probably a lot of unbelievers in this mob, unbelieving Jews, but you do probably in the crowd, you, you do have some believing Jewish people in this mob. Some of them could be confused. Some of them maybe are just kind of innocent bystanders because they happen to be there anyway. And they're just trying to figure out what's going on. Some of these believing Jews may have never seen Paul in their life. They don't know who he is. And all they heard was, there's a blasphemer. Well, if you're a good Christian Jew at the temple, you don't want a blasphemer in the vicinity. So maybe some of them got caught up into it. Ignorantly, that happens. There are a few loyal, faithful believing Jews who are in this mob, or at least around, probably Luke, Paul's friend, Paul's medic, because of the detail recorded in Luke 22 is so specific, so detailed, it's evidence of an eyewitness account. Somebody was there watching Paul get beat up. Somebody was there watching and listening to what Paul said that day when he began speaking. I believe that was Luke. We know Luke was with Paul. So we're going to get to that. So Paul testifies to the Jewish mob. Before we do, go to Isaiah 53. That was a beautiful song. It uh, was just sung, Man of Sorrows. Uh, that comes right out of Isaiah 53. And I actually planned on reading this before I even knew that song was being sung. That's the providence of God. Uh, what I want you to do, long before there was John the Baptist who announced that the Messiah was come, coming, repent and believe in the Messiah, long before... John the Baptist, 700 years before, was Isaiah, who did something very similar, who was a Jew. He was a Jewish prophet. He was called by God to speak to the Jews and to speak a very simple message. It was about repent of your sin, and at the same time, the Messiah is coming. So it's the same message, in essence, that John the Baptist was preaching. Isaiah, the prophet, he did it for decades, by the way. 
Isaiah. Repent, turn from your sin, turn to God, turn to the true God, turn to Yahweh. And his Messiah is coming, his son is coming. So then Isaiah writes a summary of his 40 years of preaching and prophesying. And he's calling the Jews to repentance. And he says the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. The anointed king, the Jewish Messiah is coming. He'll be born as a baby. He will indeed be, he will actually be deity in a body, the incarnation. He will be born of a virgin to the Jewish people as their ruler. These are all things that Isaiah prophesied very specifically in his, in his book to the Jews. Not only that, he will be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah said that more than once. The Messiah is coming. The Jewish Messiah is coming. And he will not just be a savior for us Jews. He will be a light unto the Gentiles. He will be the savior of the world. That is what Isaiah said. The Jews, they all have this book. So that's, I don't know, why did that cause them to stumble or trip them up when in the message we're going to see today in Acts 22 when Paul refers to the Messiah as in reference to the Gentiles, they get riled up and they just blow up as though they'd never heard that truth before. It's in the prophecy of Isaiah, among other many other Old Testament books. So, And one other thing that the unbelieving Jews just couldn't handle about this idea of Jesus as Savior is that he died, that he was crucified. He was hung as a like a criminal on a tree and cursed by God. Unbelieving Jews, they couldn't handle that. They said there is no way our Messiah would be subjected to the death penalty of a criminal being hung on a tree. When actually it's in their very prophecy of Isaiah 53. So let's look at it. They had this book. It takes up the entire chapter. So imagine now as I read this, think about it's 700 B.C. before Christ. You are a Jew. You are in Israel. You're around Jerusalem. There's Isaiah, a very famous prophet, been around for almost 40 years, preaching the same message, writes a book. It's one of the most popular, well-known books in the entire Old Testament among the Jews, including the Jews of Jesus and Paul's day. This chapter is not ambiguous. It is not unclear. They knew it was there. Here's what it says. Isaiah 53. It is about Jesus. It is about the coming Messiah who will be born 700 years. And he is going to be, he's not just born Savior. He will die. He must die. He will die as a substitute. He will die as a substitute for sinners. He will rise again from the dead. That's the summary of Isaiah 53. Let's read it. Verse 2. For he, the Messiah... Even though it hasn't happened yet. 700 years. This is a prophecy. He grew up before him. That's The Messiah will grow up before God the Father. Like a tender shoot. Like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty. He's just going to look like any other Jew. He is the king. But he's not dressed in regalia or majesty. The way we would think. He looks like any other normal Jew. He has no form of majesty. That we as normal Jews should look upon him. Nor appearance that... We should be attracted to him. Jesus looked like any other Jew of his day. Verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. And he was when he began his ministry. Forsaken of his own people. The Jews. They rejected him. For the most part. He was a man of sorrows. There it is. What does that mean? Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Meaning. And again in verse 4. Talks about sorrow. But he was a man of sorrows. He he took the burden of sin and sorrow upon himself. And, that, and he identified with us as fallen, sinful, weak people. He was the Savior. 
He identified with our suffering. Did Jesus ever, was he ever depressed? Absolutely. It's right here. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken. We the Jews, the Jewish people, smitten of God, so we considered him a curse of God. He can't be the Savior. Verse 5, but he was pierced through. There it is. He was crucified for our transgressions. So it was an atoning death. It was a substitutionary death. It was on behalf of sinners. It was death with a purpose. He was crushed for our iniquities. He died that we might have forgiveness of sin. This is so explicit. The chastening from God the Father for our well-being fell upon him. Jesus absorbed the wrath of the Father on behalf of sinners. It couldn't be clearer. By his scourging, we are healed. He was scourged, whipped. All of us, every human being, all the Jews, all of us, like sheep have gone astray. We are sinful. Each one of us has turned to our own way. We are all self-centered, selfish to the core, without exception. But the Lord, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. He's our substitute if we believe in him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He, he came to die. He didn't resist it. He came to die. He planned his own death. He planned it before the foundation of the world. That's why he came. He, he was born to die. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He knew he was in the will of God. He didn't resist. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Verse 9, his grave was assigned to be with wicked men. And he was. He died with two evil, wicked men who deserved death. Yet with a rich man in his death, that was Joseph and Arimathea, born, uh, was buried in his grave. Although he had done no violence. He was sinless, and yet he died the penalty of a criminal. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He never lied. He always told the truth. He was the truth incarnate. Verse 10. But Yahweh, God the Father, was pleased. Was pleased to crush him. God the Father was pleased, satisfied, fulfilled, to kill Jesus on the cross. God the Father, I thought God the Father was sad. Well, he was. Because Jesus was the Son of God, eternally one with the Father for all eternity. And now there was a separation, not just physically, but supernaturally and spiritually. There was a separation like never before because of sin. Yet the Father was pleased because he was going to accomplish salvation for sinners through this. So... Yahweh, God the Father, was pleased to crush Jesus, to punish Jesus on behalf of sinners, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. There it is, that offering of blood shed went up to the Father, and the Father was pleased with Jesus' obedience on behalf of sinners. He will see, see his offspring. The Father is pleased because he knows death isn't the final story. He knows resurrection is coming. He knows that Jesus will rise from the dead. That's why he is pleased. And the resurrection, he overcomes sin, death, Hell the, uh, hell, the world. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The Messiah will come back to life. He will see his offspring. Jesus will be reunited with the Father after resurrection upon ascension where he goes back into heaven to be with the Father whom he had spent all eternity with. That's why the Father's pleased. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand and as a result of the... Now, I want you to key in on verse 11. Culmination 
of this prophecy about Jesus the Messiah who would die for sinners, including the Gentiles. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one... Now, this is God the Father talking. And God the Father says about Jesus, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, God the Father, Yahweh, calls Jesus, the Messiah who would die, the righteous one. That is a technical phrase. The Messiah is the righteous one. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is completely obedient. He submitted perfectly to my will. He accomplished my plan. He represents me. He's the Savior of the world. He is the only righteous one. The righteous one. Every Jew who knew their Old Testament in Paul's day knew that technical phrase. The righteous one. And it referred to the Messiah. And it came out of Isaiah 53. We're going to see that phrase in Acts 22 today. That's why it's so important. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. One man will die on behalf of many, as he will bear their iniquities. It's awesome. Then you can read verse 12. But go back now to Acts chapter 22. So now we got the setting. Paul's ready to speak to this mob. And by the way, so the Roman general or whatever he was who's in charge of a thousand troops, and he's kind of the head officer in this whole thing, he, he's just shocked and surprised that Paul wants to talk to the crowd. For a couple of reasons. He's shocked by a couple of things. The first thing he's shocked by is that Paul knew, was just clear as a bell and erudite and educated with respect to the Greek language. That's the first thing that threw the Roman soldier off. Oh, I thought you were Egyptian. I thought you were this Egyptian terrorist guy. What in the world are you doing speaking polished Greek? So that's the first thing he was surprised by. Then he was also surprised by the fact that he was a, we're going to see a, a Roman citizen. And before that, He's surprised that Paul wants to address this mob that just wanted to kill him. Here, I'm trying to take you into the barracks where you're safe, and you want to stop here and talk to this mob that wants to kill you? So that's the context. Let's go ahead and look at it. And let's look at Paul's testimony. He testifies to the Jewish mob in the face of imminent death. We've got three points there going all the way up to verse 22. A section at a time. As we walk through Paul's, if you want to call it a sermon, uh, it's more of a testimony not really a sermon. It's a testimony. It's spontaneous. He wasn't planning and studying this throughout the week. Put in, I put in 22 hours of study for this delivery. No. This was spontaneous as he's being moved by the Spirit of God as an apostle to really, it's almost prophetic in what he says. And I think Luke was there and heard every word of it and then captured that for us, preserved it through the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Let's go ahead and look at it. So first part is 1 to 5. 1 to 5, as Paul begins speaking to this Jewish mob, Paul rehearses his Jewish reputation, uh, seeking common ground. So he's got this mob, and you've got to be wise. You're talking to the, the violent mob. You've got to get him to settle down somehow. He tried doing this with his hand. That you know made him settle down a little bit. And the next thing he does is he starts speaking in Aramaic, and that makes him settle down. And the next thing he does to kind of bring him down is he tries to find common ground with them, not illegitimately so, not in a compromised fashion. He doesn't compromise truth. He's trying to find legitimate common ground, which is okay for Christians to do with unbelievers. I don't care what unbeliever you are with, interfacing with. doesn't matter if it's an unbeliever and you as a believer. There is common ground you have with that unbeliever. It doesn't matter if they're an atheist, an agnostic, uneducated, highly educated, from a different country, 
a Mormon, a Muslim, a Mooney, a Methodist. doesn't matter. You have common ground with them. You just The question is, where's the common ground? Well, there's common ground with every human being. By virtue of fact, we're all created by God. We all have a conscience, whether they admit it or not. We have an intuitive knowledge that God exists and we are accountable to him. So there's a lot of those kind of unchanging, ontological, common ground features that we can talk to an unbeliever with. Here's one. Paul uses uh, for common ground his Jewish heritage and his Jewish upbringing. Because after all, why are they so upset? What was the lie? What was the gossip? He has abandoned Judaism. He hates the Jews. He hates the Jewish religion. He has no respect for uh, Moses and the law in the temple. And so he's going to, first of all, say, well, that's, first of all, that's not true. And then he's going to point out several things that are true about himself, his history, his upbringing, and even current day status as a Jew, trying to establish, no, I have common ground with you. You're trying to kill me for despising Judaism. That's wrong. If that's your basis for trying to kill me, that is wrong. Categorically wrong. As a matter of fact, when it comes to Judaism, I'm actually more Jewish than you guys. I am a fulfilled Jew. I know the greatest Jew. It's Jesus. So how ironic was that? But that's what he's doing in the first five verses. He he wants to let them know. Because there were a lot of Jews there who didn't know who he was. Paul has not spent much time. It's been 20 plus years since he got saved. He's only been to Jerusalem a couple of times for a short period of time because they were trying to kill him when he got saved. So it's been a long time since he's been in Jerusalem. He hasn't spent enough time there to get to know people. So a large part of this crowd, they don't know who Paul is. They don't know what he looks like. Probably mostly heard rumors. So that's what he's trying to establish here. First, let's go ahead and look at it. He's trying to establish some common ground that is legitimate by which there's a basis to have a verbal exchange and talk with people who are mad at you, people who hate you, unbelievers, believers who are confused, where's the legitimate common ground? To the Jew, I became a Jew, 1 Corinthians 9. That was part of his legitimate strategy, never compromising the truth in the process. So he, he begins to speak, and what does he say first thing? Brethren, brethren, he's talking to Jew, Jewish bread. That's how Jews address one another, brothers, brothers in Yahweh. That's what Stephen said. Brethren, brethren and fathers. This is a great term of respect. Brethren, all fellow Jews, but fathers. He's recognizing the elders among him. Great respect. Giving them deference. They were running the show. They were in charge. They maintained the temple. The elders, the the Sanhedrin, those who wielded the power and the authority in Jerusalem. So this is a great sign of respect and deference to his Jewish community, Jewish family, everybody that was there, including the elders, giving them their due respect. That's Romans 13. I don't care who is in charge, but if there is an authority figure there, that authority was ordained by God, whether they are good or evil, and they deserve due deference as an authority figure. Hear my defense. Hear my apologia. Hear my apologetic. Apologetic. What is Paul doing here? He's doing apologetics. Oh, you mean he's engaging in highfalutin, erudite, elitist philosophy? No. Oh, you mean he's going to spew the cosmological argument for the next 35 minutes, never referring to a Bible verse? No. Is he going to refer to the teleological argument and the moral argument? No. 
Hear my apologia. Hear my apologetic. You know what it means? Hear my testimony. That's what it means. When you do apologetics with unbelievers, you should always incorporate your testimony. This is the first of six testimonies. These are the first of six apologetics Paul is going to give here in the book of Acts. And so when you interact with unbelievers, starting in your own family, oh, I don't know what to say. My, my parents or my dad, they're so close-minded and they think I'm just young, uneducated, inexperienced and an idiot. And when I try to tell my parents about Christianity, they just think I'm a fool and it's a phase I'm going through and they don't want to listen to me and I'm the youngest of my siblings and they don't want to hear me and I don't know all the arguments and my uncle, he's so educated and he's got a PhD in science and he always pokes holes in all my... And he asks me questions about the Bible I can't understand and I always look like a fool and so I just... I'm all... I feel so uncomfortable trying to share the gospel with unbelievers all the time because I'm hampered and I'm hamstrung and I'm not educated enough and I just can't do it. Um, that probably resonates with some of you. I know it did with me. still does at times. Well, there's a solution to that. Always start with your apologia. Always start with your testimony. Always start with you of how you got saved for a lot of reasons. Number one, you are the world's expert on how you got saved. Number two, they cannot argue with your testimony. No, I was there. You were not. You can't say it was true. You were I was there. No, it, it, it's an experience I really went through. It's undeniable. I know I went through this. I know this happened. Jesus changed my life. So you start with the testimony. So if think about right now. If you are saved and you have family members who are not saved, question number one, have you shared the gospel, the entire gospel, with all immediate family members who are not Christians? At one time or another in your life. Have you done that? That's the first question. The answer is yes, good. Now just be committed to pray. If there's somebody you can think, oh, you know what? Actually, I haven't given my brother the full gospel. Why not? You need to take care of that. Well, he's not easy to talk to. He argues with me. He's smarter than me. Uh, Problem solved. Give him your testimony. Doesn't have to be long. Give him your testimony. And within your testimony, you you give the gospel inherently in your testimony. Here's what Jesus did to save me. It's like in John chapter 9, the blind guy to the Pharisees, when they listened to him, he gave his testimony. They were smarter than he was. He was not erudite and trained like they were. He was totally dis... He was not respected at all by the community. And he goes before the smartest people in Judaism, and they said, okay, tell us what happened. And he says, all I know is I was blind, and now I see. Thank you, Jesus. That was his testimony. That was powerful. That was awesome. And you know, you know how they responded? They got angry. Ang- they didn't try to refute him. They just got angry because they hated that name, Jesus. So, yeah, give your testimony. Give your apology. Paul, three times Paul's testimony, this same story, three times is recorded in the book of Acts. Three times. Acts chapter 9, right here, Acts 26, which tells you the power of a testimony. And those aren't the only examples. Testimonies are all over the place. The woman at the well, she interacts with Jesus. Here's the gospel. She gets saved. Uh, or at least she figures out who Jesus is. He's the real Messiah. What does she do? She goes into town, and she, because she's an immoral woman, she's despised by the community. She doesn't care. She just starts telling everybody, I think I found the Messiah. I think I found the Messiah. Come one. Come all. I think he's over there. And then the entire city goes. Based on what? Her testimony. So go back to the family, anybody you know, co-workers, who I've been working at the same place for three years, 
and the cubby hole, two cubby holes down. That guy's been there, and he still hasn't heard the gospel from me yet. Give him your testimony. At break or whenever you can. It's powerful. That's what Paul's going to do. Brethren and fathers, hear my apologia, which I now offer to you. Now, when, verse 2, when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, in Aramaic, their own language, the language of the Jews, they're like, because they heard him speak in Greek already. And that was kind of impressive. And now, whoa, Aramaic, the language of the Hebrew scriptures, perfect Aramaic. Well, how's that possible? Because he grew up and was trained in Jerusalem by the best of the best when it came to the Hebrew Old Testament. So he's addressing them in the Hebrew dialect. They became even more quiet. Then just a total silence in the, in the mob. They were interested. And then he said, I am a Jew. There it is. You are not a Jew. He's not a Jew. And he starts out, I am not a Jew. That's good advice. If there's gossip, if there's a lie, the first thing you do is take the lie head on. Be clear. Be point blank. That is not true. Here is the truth. You said, I'm not a Jew. I am a Jew. Stand by it. Don't cower. Not only am I a Jew. And then everything he says for the next couple of verses is uh, undergirding the reality that he was a Jew, a Jew among the Jews, a committed Jew, a zealous Jew, an exemplary Jew. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He already said that was a city uh, of no mean city, meaning it was a significant city. It was a well-known city. It was a world-renowned city, even among the Jews. It was right up there going up. He was at the Church of Antioch, and then you just go up a little more on the uh, Mediterranean Sea, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Cilicia. He'd been there in missionary trip number two, missionary trip number three, born and raised there. He was a Roman citizen that he earned there from his family, from his father, maybe his grandfather. And Tarsus was known in Paul's day as one of the top three educational cities in the world at the time next to Athens and Alexandria, as well as a world-renowned commercial city. So it was of repute. And if you were a Jew of Tarsus, you were a Jew of repute. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicily, but brought up in, but I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was brought up right here. I was raised here. I am a Jew. Educated under Gamaliel. Wow. I mean, some of the jaws must have dropped. Gamaliel? Gamaliel was at this... He had just died. This is 57, 58 AD. Gamaliel died about 52. But his reputation was still fresh in the minds of all the Jews because he was the greatest Jewish teacher uh, of that day, of that era, Gamaliel. He was the master, the master Jewish rabbi, respected by all, the grandson of Hillel the Elder, the greatest of all Jewish scholars and rabbis. And Paul says, I was trained by Gamaliel, the best, here in Jerusalem. I mean, nobody could argue with that. So he is giving his resume, not to boast, but in light of this common ground, to combat the lie that he wasn't Jewish. I'm as Jewish as they come. He could have said, I'm a, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He doesn't need to because of his audience that he's talking to. So I was raised here in Jerusalem by Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers. So he's trained in the Mosaic law, but also the Jewish traditions of the time that the Jews passed on. Being a, ze being a zealot. I was zealous for God. I was zealous for Yahweh. I was zealous, like many of you are zealous for the Jewish law. 
So was I. So he's identifying with them. He's trying to, just as you all are today. You have zeal. You have zeal for the law. You have zeal for the temple. That's good. I understand that. I am with you. I was there. I know what it's like. This was me. I was just like you. Verse 4. To the point that I persecuted. I beat up. I dragged out. That's what they just did to him. Persecuted. You persecuting me. You beat me up here in the temple. I used to do that. I'm a Christian. You're beating me up. I used to beat up Christians for a living. I was just like you. And I persecuted this way right here. You're beating me up because I'm a part of the way, the way Jesus' way. He's the only way to heaven. That's why you're beating me up. That's why you hate me. And I, I used to do that. I used to beat up and persecute and see to the death of Christians. Specifically, binding and put, uh, going, procuring, arresting, chaining, roping men and women in Jerusalem and from great distances, bringing them back, extraditing them to the city of Jerusalem, legally with the approval of the Sanhedrin, with the approval of all Jewish leaders in every region and city. That's what I did. Putting them in prison, hopefully putting them to the death. Binding and putting both men and women in prison. Verse 5. And also, the high priest and all the council, the highest authority in the land, the Sanhedrin, of the elders, they can testify. So there were probably in the crowd some Sanhedrin members that were still alive when Paul got saved and when he used to be a persecutor, some 25 plus years before. They'd be old, but maybe there were some. Because Paul was young and probably a part of the Sanhedrin. They can testify. So again, this is very important as a Jew. If you want to say something as a Jew... Nobody has to believe it unless it is validated with the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's right out of the book of Deuteronomy. If you're Jewish and you're speaking legally and about binding truth, you need witnesses. You can't just do like you do in America, just make stuff up and say it. Why is it true? Because I said so. No, it's not. As a matter of fact, you see that all throughout here. Paul continually through this whole talk keeps referring to witnesses. God was my witness. Uh, these men who heard the voice were my witnesses. Ananias, a Jew, was a witness. Uh, the Sanhedrin and council that was there was a witness. Gamaliel was a witness who taught me. It's witness, witness, validating, Deuteronomy, the law of God. This is true. Very, very important in the mind of the Jews. Middle of verse 5, from them I also received letters. From them, from the Jewish leadership, the Jewish authority, I received official letters from those in Jerusalem, from the Sanhedrin, the ruling authoritative body. I received permission from them to the Jews in other cities, allowing me to go take refugees who have fled from Jerusalem to other cities so that I might grab them, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem to throw them in jail. So I persecuted formally on behalf of the Jewish leadership of the Sanhedrin, the highest authority in the land. From then on, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to the punished. So Damascus, the main city in Damascus is Syria. This is 2,000 years later. It's kind of ironic. Today, the refugees are leaving Syria to other parts of the world. In Paul's day, the Christians were fleeing to Syria as refugees. Just the opposite. But that's what was going on. And so hundreds, if not thousands, of persecuted Christians left the Jerusalem area in Judea, fleeing to the haven of Syria. And Paul goes to Syria, Damascus, to get these Christians, to bring them out, to punish them, and hopefully put them to death. That's what he did. So, but all the while, he's establishing his reputation as a Jew and trying to establish common ground to gain a hearing. Masterfully 
So, point number two, verse 6 through 16. After he rehearses his Jewish reputation, then he relates the divine confrontation, verified by a plurality of witnesses. Verified by witnesses, very, very important, starting at verse 6. And it came about that as I was on my way to Damascus, on my way chasing down these refugees who lived in Syria, and I was approaching Damascus and its massive walls that protected the city, he managed to get through the walls with permission because they had laws and procedures and protocol. And he had the proper authority and papers to get into that city. And he got there about noontime, and all of a sudden a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. We, see, we saw that already in Acts chapter 9, a bright light. That is Jesus Christ in glory from heaven appearing to the Apostle Paul in a vision. This is what happened 25 years before when he got saved. He's an unbeliever at the time, and Jesus from heaven appears to him in brilliant, bright, blinding light all around me. Paul is with an entourage at the time, so there's this bright light. Paul sees Jesus in glory at the time. Paul hears Jesus talking to the other people that are there with him. They don't see Jesus. They see light. They don't hear talking. They hear noise and thunder. Paul hears Jesus talking. Verse 7, I fell to the ground, scared to death probably, and I heard a voice. He went blind. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you? This is Jesus talking. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, this is interesting. Uh, Paul never persecuted Jesus personally. There's no evidence of that. Jesus was in heaven. So how can Jesus say to Paul, to Saul, why are you persecuting me if he actually never persecuted? Because if you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you are a child of God. If you are a Christian, you are a believer in the palm of the Savior's hand. And if somebody persecutes you on behalf of Jesus, it is the equivalent of persecuting Jesus. If somebody mocks you for being a Christian, they are first and foremost mocking God the Savior. That is comforting. And persecution can come in all kinds of forms. So that's what Paul was doing. He was persecuting Christians. And Jesus was like, you know what? You're persecuting me. That's the body of Christ. That's me. That is my beloved bride. That is the soul that I died for. I shed my blood for that person. I saved them. You persecute them because of their faith. You persecute me. What a confrontation. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Every time Jesus rebuked somebody in the New Testament, he repeated their name twice. That's why I think when we get to heaven, he'll say our name only once. Welcome, Cliff. And I'm going to kind of pause. Okay, one time. Good. Verse 8, and I answered, Paul, who art thou? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene. I am Jesus the Nazarene. Man, that, ooh, that probably didn't go over too well with Paul's Jewish audience. When he called him a Nazarene. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The, the Jerusalem Jews were quite arrogant about being the purists in terms of being Jewish. And yet Jesus says, I am Jesus the Nazarene. The same man. Now, the, and that also would have conjured up memories for uh, maybe many in the crowd who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus the Nazarene to the cross, death. So this was probably a shocking, alarming Statement that Paul is making to this crowd. Jesus the Nazarene. Wait, Jesus the Nazarene. Wait a minute. Jesus the Nazarene? You mean the one that we crucified and killed 25 years ago on the cross? I saw, I was there. 
He bled to death. He's dead. What do you mean? He's talking to you from heaven. No, Jesus is alive. He's risen. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior. You are accountable now to Him. I am. This is frightening. I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom we are persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light, Paul's partners, to be sure. But they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Like I said, it was just, it was just resounding, frightening, deafening noise that they heard. Verse 10, and, all, and, and then I said, what shall I do, Lord? So immediately from this confrontation, from the fear and everything about it, and just seeing God unveiled begins to soften the hardened heart of Saul, transforming him into the humble child of God, Paul. And you see this by virtue of his submission. What shall I do, Lord? Calling him, you are the master. I can't fight this. You're, you're coming out of heaven. You're the sovereign one. And the Lord said to me, arise up, go to Damascus, and there you will be. Keep going. You're headed to Damascus. I want you to go all the way. And there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. He was personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, which made him an apostle. The 12 apostles of Jesus were personally appointed by Jesus Christ. That's what made them an apostle. Paul was appointed personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he was an apostle. We don't have apostles today. Even though some people say they are apostles, they have an apostle, they know an apostle. No, they don't. There's nobody here being appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 11. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me. See, there's his witnesses. Testimony of two or three witnesses. People had to lead me by the hand. I was blind. And then I came to Damascus. They brought me to a certain man named Ananias. A man who was devout by the standard of the law. He was a Jewish man. He was well respected. There's another witness by name. Paul just continues to make his case in keeping with Old Testament scripture. That he was Jewish and that's validated by the testimony of witnesses. And they loved the law. He was devout by the standard of the law. Even as a believer, Ananias was considered a lover of the law of God. And he was well spoken of, get this, by all the Jews who lived there. Wow. That is amazing. Verse 13. Well, Ananias came to me and standing near to me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Now the brother changes. This isn't brother, fellow Jew. This is brother, fellow Christian. One who now knows, has met Jesus Christ. Receive your sight. And a miracle. Boom. He immediately began to see. And at that very time, I looked up at Ananias. Verse 14. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. There it is. Right out of Isaiah 53. God has appointed and allowed you to see the crucified one. The one who died on behalf of sinners. Who rose again from the dead. The righteous one. The Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth. You will represent him. And to hear an utterance from his mouth. That's exactly what happened. Jesus kept appearing to the apostle Paul. Six times Paul has a vision in the book of Acts. A vision from God or from Jesus. Where he's receiving direct revelation. Paul says in Galatians 1. He did, when he learned the gospel. He didn't learn it. He wasn't taught it from men. He didn't get it from Peter or the apostles. He got it directly from a revelation from Jesus Christ. Revel, uh, that's Galatians 1.12. And then he has at least six other visions in the book of Acts. So he's getting direct, divine, immediate revelation from God to know the will of God. That's why he could write 13 epistles. Giving new information, new doctrine, new mysteries that the other 12 apostles had never heard of in their life. So Ananias keeps talking. 
the righteous one to hear an utterance from his mouth. Verse 15, for you will be a witness. There it is. You will be a witness. You will be a martyr. That's where we get the word martyr from. You will be a witness for me. You will be a legal witness for me. You will speak for me. You will represent me. And yes, he would die for Jesus. You'll be a witness for him to all men, all men, not just Gentiles, but Jews as well and leaders. Sanhedrin, kings, princes, to all men of what you have seen and heard. What has he seen? He's seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and he's been given divine revelation of the gospel to share with the world. That was his mission, verse 16. And now, why do you delay, Paul or Saul? Arise, be baptized. Okay, now that, you're, now that you've seen Jesus, heard the gospel, and have believed, now you get baptized. Baptized means to immerse, to get dunked. The Jews only understood one kind of baptism in their day because John the Baptist was out there publicly dunking people in the Jordan River. Dunking, not sprinkling, dunking. That's what the word means. Get dunked. Be identified and get dunked. Now that you believe, you become, you hear the gospel, you believe, you get saved, you get dunked. By the way, we're having baptism in two or three weeks. If you need to get baptized, let me know. Now that you believe. I put off baptism a good four or five years after I believed. Out of utter ignorance. And not even hearing anybody talk about it. Arise and be baptized and uh, wash away your sins, calling on his name. The baptism doesn't wash away his sins. It's being saved washes away your sins. Jesus' death and resurrection washes away sin after you believe the message. Then you get baptized as a symbol of what happened. Very clearly. That's even Paul's teaching later on. So, after he relates the divine confrontation with Jesus, verified by a plurality of witnesses, finally 17 to 22, is now his apologia, his testimony, is coming to a high point, a crescendo. Number three, he reveals his spiritual transformation, clarifying his mission, 17 to 22. And it came about when I returned. So he does. He obeys. He gets baptized. Then three years go by. We know this from other epistles and cross-references. He gets saved, and about three years go by, and then he returns to Jerusalem after three years of being a Christian. And he was praying in the temple. Look, at he's a Christian, and he's still in the temple. Christians don't despise the temple. Christians don't despise the Old Testament. Christians believe in the Old Testament because we believe Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So he was praying in the temple as a Christian. And it says he fell into a trance. He fell into an ecstasy is the Greek word. Ecstasy. 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 Same word used to Peter, Acts chapter 10, in Joppa when he had a vision. And he was ecstasy. It's like a something prophets experienced as they were caught up in a divine heavenly vision by God and given direct revelation. Rarely used, but used to Peter, used to Paul, they were apostles. I'd say this doesn't happen today. There's no evidence that it should. The apostles were the foundation of the church. Foundation's been laid. We don't need a foundation anymore. People are saying, well, I saw Jesus. I had an ecstasy. I had a vision. I had a dream. God spoke to me. Well, God does speak to us through his word today, right? And through the Holy Spirit, through his word. That's how it's real. It's subjective. It's dynamic. It's encouraging. It's awesome. It's personal. It's intimate. But this idea of these, I had a vision, I had a vision. Well, maybe that's your imagination. But you've got to vet it through the Bible. 
And if it's in keeping with the Bible, then it's superfluous because it's already in the Bible. And if it doesn't match with the Bible, it's false. The Bible is sufficient. But Paul, as an apostle, received direct revelation. So he had a vision in Jerusalem three years after being saved. He fell into a trance. Verse 18, what did he see? I saw him. I saw him. I saw Jesus, the glorified Christ, who was in heaven at the right hand of the Father, saying to Paul, the apostle, make haste, hurry up, get out of Jerusalem quickly. Why? Because they were going to kill him. Because they will not accept your testimony about me. The Jews, they hate you. They're going to try to kill you. Uh, I still have 25 years of ministry for you. Leave. Paul doesn't want to leave. He was comfortable with Jerusalem. He loved the Jewish people. Verse 19, and I said, Lord. So he starts arguing with the resurrected Jesus from heaven. That's a dangerous prospect. They themselves, Lord, Jesus, they understand, the Jews understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. They, They knew I was once on their team. Well, they see you as a traitor now, Paul. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You become a Christian naively thinking, oh, I can go back to all my high school buddies now, my college buddies, and we, we used to go out together and have fun and do this and that together. Certainly they'll listen to me. Certainly they'll believe me. We were like this. We were ironclad. And then you go back to all your friends and they think you're a cuckoo and they want nothing to do with you anymore. You are a Jesus freak. Get out of my face. And that's what happened to Paul. And Jesus is trying to get that message through his head. Uh, verse 20 And when the blood of your servant Stephen was being shed, I was also standing by approving of Stephen's death and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him, Lord. And then Jesus said to uh, to me, Go! (laughs) The second time. For I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then Paul was obedient, he was faithful, and he ended up going on three missionary journeys all over, planting churches, telling the Gentiles and the Greeks and those who had never heard of the Bible about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. So Paul was faithful. But he always wanted to go back to Jerusalem at times. His heart was there. He loved the Jews. His desire was that they would be saved. So he's given this testimony, verse 22. And so the crowd, they listened. They were probably just captivated. And they learned a lot. And they were probably impressed by a lot. Wow, Gamaliel. That is impressive. Wow, his Aramaic is, that is polished. Boy, he's had incredible experience. Wow, he used to kill Christians. He was approved by the whole sand. He, he knew the sand. He, he was a part of the sand. He, there's a lot to be impressive. But only to a point. They listened to him up to this statement, verse 21. When Jesus told Paul, go, for I will send you far away. Here's the, here's the bad word. To the Gentiles, the dirty Gentiles, the unclean Gentiles, the non-Mosaic law Gentiles. The unsavable Gentiles. That's what a lot of the Jews were hearing when he said Gentile. Gentiles cannot be saved. Gentiles aren't loved by God. You talk about prejudice. It was to the core. It was in their DNA. They hated the Gentiles. These unbelieving Jews, they hated them. They despised them. And this whole idea that Paul would be, going, would be sent by the Messiah to go to the Gentiles with the, the good news and the love of God? Yahweh? That is absurd. Unacceptable. All the while, we just saw that it was in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, or in the book of Isaiah, a light unto the Gentiles. Isaiah 46, Isaiah 49. Verse 22. 
So they listened up to that statement when he got to the Gentiles, and then they raised their voices very loud and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. Away with such a fellow! To the death is what they meant. For he should not be allowed to live. So they just go raving mad instantaneously, all in unison at the same time. Back to where they were. Fever pitch. Death to this man. It's alarming. Now, no doubt in this massive crowd, by the way, that's in the court of the Gentiles, there are believers in there mixed up. There are many who are ignorant mixed up, yet they are overpowered by those who are filled with hate calling for Paul's death. The mob takes over. And so you look at the story and see Paul gets arrested and taken away. Never at any time do we see that and a, a bunch of uh, Christians spoke up, rose up, and intervened on his behalf. You don't see that because I don't think it was possible. I mean, the Roman soldiers, there were hundreds of them who were armed, couldn't handle this crowd. Let alone, you got Luke. I mean, Luke is a Christian. Luke knows as a Christian, okay, I'm not supposed to fight or punch or retaliate. I'm supposed to suffer for Jesus. And I got to sit here and watch Paul suffer for Jesus. And I just have to stand here and take it as an obedient Christian and maybe just pray as punches are being thrown and Luke's being squished and Dear, dear Jesus, punch, whatever it is. That, that's why the Christians didn't rise up. They're not supposed to. They're to submit. They're to trust God even to the point of death. With that, let's go ahead and just close with a couple of thoughts and reminders. Uh, just encouraging you or all of us, think about unbelievers in our life, starting in our own Jerusalem with our own family members who are in close proximity, and ask yourself, have they heard the full gospel? If they have, just keep praying for their salvation. Pray that God's Spirit would remove their blindness. If, the, if there's some that haven't, just, God, help me give my testimony somehow, the seed of the gospel, to Uncle Fred or Brother Joe. And soon. God will honor that. And then also ask God to help you be willing to give your testimony with anybody you meet in the workplace, on the street, as you have opportunity. Like I said, it's the easiest, most natural way to share the gospel. Here's what Jesus did to me. I used to be like this. I used to drink beer and be an alcoholic, and I ended up in jail, and I was just living a life uh, on the path to hell and death, and God just changed me. I mean, that's just a powerful statement. I mean, people just are taken aback by it. They can't argue. A lot of times they just get convicted by it. It's like, well, because they know. They know. As the Holy Spirit is confirming that on their conscience, they know that is true. And you've got to take it the next step to tell them about Jesus, how he saved them, who he was, and about how you were saved from sin. I'm going to close with this. It was uh, almost 15 years ago where I did a funeral in Los Altos for uh, a fireman who was highly respected in uh, several cities as a fireman. He had cancer and a tumor, and he died over the course of about two years. But he's a Christian. He loved Jesus. And the entire his wife invited the entire fire department. There were going to be over 200 firemen at his funeral. And I was doing, and I was doing his funeral. Most of these guys were not saved. It was going to be a packed house. And I just remember when he was in his last days in the hospital, 
on his bed. He solved the dilemma for me. I didn't even have to ask him. He said, Cliff, when you do my message, can you just tell him my testimony of how I got saved? I was like, Phew. absolutely. And it was perfect. I had it written out. It was short, but it was clear. Dave used to be like this. And Jesus saved him. And here's who Jesus is. And here's how Jesus did it. It was a complete gospel message. So the eternal seed of the gospel was planted maybe for the first time in many of these people's lives. And here it is 15 years later. That seed is still alive. The Spirit of God is using that, watering that seed, using that seed to convict, to tear away blindness from sin and also from satanic blindness. And who knows, 15 years later, maybe someone has been saved as a result. And that is the power of a personal testimony. With that, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we do thank you for our time together, time to be with the saints to worship you, and once again, just the treasure of your word, the Bible, just how amazing it is, a book that's 2,000 years old and, and so relevant, so fresh, and our story today, so specific. Thank you for reminding us through how you saved Paul, of what a gracious, gracious Savior you, you are, and you continue to call sinners to yourself, you welcome them, if they understand the gospel and their need for a Savior. And empower us, God, with courage, your spirit, the truth, and opportunities to continue sharing the gospel, the good news, everywhere we go, and that you would use even our testimony to do that all for your glory. We thank you. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.